This podcast is brought to you by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry. Welcome back to Asia Securities Finance Monthly. Thanks for joining us for our fifth episode. Each month, we bring you insights and perspective from around the region on the news and developments shaping the securities lending industry. Coming up, we sit down with APAC market experts and try and tackle both Japan and Australia. And of course, our conversation with this month's legend of the market, Jack Chang. It's unfortunate that in finance, being nice is often considered a weakness, as we all know. Our industry should be doing more than just making money. In my view, we should have a bigger role in making a better world. And more on that a little later in the show. In our last podcast, we did a deep dive into the niche market of Taiwan. Today, we'll try and get our arms around Japan and Australia, two of the more liquid markets in Asia. Joining us now is Rob Nichols, Executive Director, JP Morgan Sydney, and Amiko Ida, Director, Mizuho Securities Tokyo. Welcome. Now, Amiko, can you help us understand the difference between onshore and offshore lenders in Japan? Basically, what are the advantages of each? Sure. Offshore lenders basically deal with a wider range of collateral types. So the use of tripod is very common and advanced to trade with them. With regard to trade settlement schedules such as a T0, T1, T2 trade, limited offshore lenders did T0 trade in the past, but it changed after buy-sell settlement cycle change in Japan in 2019. So their transactions are very close to our domestic standards. Well, another major difference is the dividend requirement ratio. The ratio differs depending on the asset domicile. Lendable assets from Japan onshore lenders are basically Japan domicile, so the ratio is 100% as a charge, while overseas ones vary. This can be one of the factors for Stockholm fee pricing, so offshore can be from time to time has an advantage. Now, do you see the supply of domestic versus offshore lenders changing? For example, are there more domestically held assets entering the lending market in the upcoming months or years? That is exactly the thing. I will pick up one thing from retail brokers, for example, as well as the other basic or traditional asset holders. They have a large presence recently for Japan lending market. It seems that they have a trillion yen execution size things and the size of the assets. And then that is a more than 10 billion US dollar worth level of transactions. And then they are pretty happy to getting into more into our equity finance market. Now, I'm sure most of us are familiar with the current foreign exchange volatility, especially the yen to the U.S. dollar being close to an all-time high. Have you seen any recent asks from your clients or lenders that you can share? Due to large FX rate move, the government bond price move, there might be some um, haircut or collateral performance change. The change is not that decently seen in the market, but still I can hear some of the voice. And then price volatility, even on a one-day move, is larger than it used to be. So collateral management or profile of collateral is a bit more uh, need to take care part now. Now, Rob, as the current chairman of ASLA, can you walk us through trends in what's currently driving demand in Australia? Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, most people know the year kicked off down here. And it's probably one of the largest trades Australia's seen in many years with the BHP dual listing collapsing going through at the end of Q1 this year. That drove balances up in Australia to a record high of $32 billion on loan. The average normally is around about $20 billion. So you can see that it just added, loan added around about $12 billion in balances. 
Whilst other deals have been light this year, those that have that come up again have been in high demand. Just look at perpetual pendle deal that's playing out right now. This is not a straightforward deal. It's mainly for thought, and there's a lot of pent up demand, and the rates are going through the roof again on this one. So again, good to see that in Australia, plenty of you know strength in the deal names. Other trades that play continue to be like the lithium miners, think electric vehicles, tech space, including disruptors in the buy now, pay later space. Energy stocks and banks have had a mixed bag this year. Australia definitely isn't just these uh, two kind of sectors, which most people seem to think. If you look at what data lens shows for revenues in the last quarter, they're up 60% over the same period of last year. So it's great to see that Australia has some depth and there's plenty of interest in the space at the moment. Yeah, that's very helpful, Rob. Now, I'm probably writing verbal checks here that I won't be able to cash, but the back end of the ASX 200, those names are more illiquid and therefore harder to borrow. So normally they tend to see more demand. Is that correct? Yes, things become a lot more liquid towards the back end. We find actually there's more demand probably for ASX 300, where we see a lot less liquidity. Typically, your you know, agency lending clients, superannuation money, sovereign wealth kind of guys don't own those kind of stocks. So definitely where you know, we think demand, those names definitely have come into vogue and definitely have higher rates than your normal ASX 200 names. Makes sense. Now, what exactly are proxy recalls and are they a big deal? Look, I mean, proxy recalls basically means underlying holders recalling their stock so they can vote. Now, obviously, the, one of the main things here at play is ESG, a buzzword that most people who uh, listen to Pazla will know well. Look, we know the Australian superannuation industry manages around about 3.3 trillion, actually, trillion Aussie, that is, on behalf of 16 million Australians. Being one of the largest mandated pension systems in the world, Australia's investors whilst increasingly looking to make sure they have a decent retirement, you know, ending up sitting on the beach uh, or going to Vegas. Um, most of them now have a social conscious in terms of how with the size of that they're under management. They want to make sure that their views are being passed through to the companies they're invested in, be it, you know, looking at a chairman's salary through to green initiatives. This means that a lot of the funds now down here are taking the active stance to recall their stock so that they can vote. Now, that means recalling 100% of it in some circumstances or recalling a percentage. But ultimately, these guys want to make sure that when the AGMs come up and there's something their members are interested in, they have the ability to vote. Yeah. Now, regarding Aussie super funds and ESG, we'll certainly get to that in a minute. But can you walk us through what franking credits are? I've been in Asia for 14 years and I still don't have a clue. So Australia has, in the borrow loans world, a defined domestic and offshore market. And that's really based off tax, which franking is a part of. So, for example, if an AU-listed company announces what's called a frank dividend, basically what it's saying to the market is that it's already suffered tax on the profits it's using to pay that dividend. And by issuing a franking credit to the dividend holders, to the guys who get the div, sorry, that means they will use that franking credit to offset their own withholding tax liability. So ultimately, the franking credit, all it does is helps offset double taxation on dividends. Now, one thing to know, and I mentioned this obviously, the dual market offshore domestic, these are only applicable to domestic holders. If you're an offshore guy sitting outside of Australia, you cannot monetize a franking credit or franking statement. That means then that it literally cuts the market in two. And what this means, though, is that if you borrow frank stock from a domestic player, you are liable for a lot bigger percentage of the div than you would be from offshore. Vis-a-vis, -vis, 
that means it creates a market in terms of different rates based off where the holder comes from. Sure, that's its own separate podcast, to be honest. Now, peeling back the onion a little, what does the lending environment currently look like for domestic and offshore participants? And as the Aussie super funds become more sophisticated, how is that impacting other members of security finance ecosystem, in particular, prime brokers like yourself and agent lenders? The answer is it's strong. You know, utilization of assets in the lending pool continues to grow domestically on offshore. You know, the pool's obviously rather large. It's about 4% utilized, but the average for the last few years has been kind of low threes. So we're definitely moving in the right direction. Lending revenues are up this year. Um, I think in the last quarter, they were 60% up according to data lend year on year. So again, things are going really well down here. Um, what we've seen, we've seen definitely the existing lender community, both offshore and onshore, develop their offerings. They're definitely broadening the scope of what they can lend whilst adding new clients. But also we've seen definitely some new participants locally and globally come to market. Definitely there has been some probably noticeable departures, mainly domestic for various reasons, including probably what's ESG. But ultimately, we don't think that's had a very large impact on the supply that's in the market at the moment. Next part of the question, I guess you picked on is sophistication. You know, definitely to your point, Matt, the super funds down here are definitely becoming a lot more sophisticated, especially in the time that I've been down here. Consolidation continues in that sector. JP Morgan themselves actually predict that we're going to go from about 170 super funds today to only 50 by 2025. What's happening when this happens is the supers are in-housing more and more function and decision-making. And what we're seeing is some of the super funds actually open their own internal liquidity desks, which is looking to centrally manage their funding solutions. And that includes stock loan. These funds are now more approachable, better place to look at bespoke and differing offerings compared to your standard SBL contracts. This makes them a lot more competitive in the offshore space when taking into account the tax issues. You may hear this a lot, it's very reminiscent of the Canadian market. Remember, they're not just holding Australian underliers, but global multi-assets that we're all looking to borrow. So what does that mean for primes and lenders? Hopefully, it just means we get more business done uh, and we do it in a lot more bespoke, different way to make things fit and feel for each different person. Now, let's go a little bit off menu here. ESG, and for those who don't know, environmental, social, and corporate governance is always a relevant topic, not only for the banking community, but for our larger community as a whole. Can I get your thoughts on how Australia leads the way in the ESG space and its impact on securities finance? Yeah, again, I think as the superannuation industry grows down here, a lot more people in Australia definitely have a feeling for ESG. And they get, as I said, they want to use those holdings they have and the size of them to make a difference. And I think Australia has been a forefront of that. I think you've seen in our politics um, definitely a, a switch to more green uh, initiatives, you know, be it this country's been reliant on coal and mining for a very long time. And this is focused, you know, filtering through in all sectors now. And people want to make sure that the world of tomorrow for their children is definitely in a position that they've set today. So, you know, Australia definitely has been a shining light. And I think what you'll see is definitely with this, again, this touching on superannuation is that, that as they grow globally, they will take those policies offshore as well, and that will have an impact in the markets that they play in as well. Yeah, there's a lot of takeaways there. Thanks, Rob. Now, Amico, this question is a little off schedule, but I think it's an important ask. Banking has been historically a male-dominant industry. We've seen inroads for more inclusion and diversity over the last decade. Could you share with us how you've navigated that landscape in your career? 
The movement for women's involvement and advancement is one of the main targets or trends in Japan, in finance especially, but as well as other outside finance. More recently, there has been a so-called bubble of situation of female external directors, which have increased uh, greatly. Thus, there have been very significant changes to the women's involvement in recent years. This is challenge has a lot to do with Japanese fundamental human resource development and employee mindset. Actually, the companies and the system of lifetime employment in Japan needs to motivate and um, promote employees within the company. Management, human resources, and employees must work together to change the internal environment. And now my last question regarding Japan is, with the upcoming Tokyo PASLA conference quickly approaching in March 2023, do you expect a good turnout from beneficial owners, senior management, and of course, APAC traders? I think, uh, yeah, I, I would, we would definitely see some uh, participants from uh, beneficial owners. After you know, the 2020 Padla event was cancelled, uh, this is the first time in a while that we have a face-to-face event. And we believe that we can expect a good number of participants, including such a, uh, the beneficial owners, especially where the ban on the large-scale events has not been lifted for a long time here. I also hear some of respect for such an puzzle-like organization's energy and activities. We have also had similar positive feedback from industry senior management. Rob and Ida-san, we appreciate your time as well as your insights, and hopefully we'll see you both in Tokyo for the upcoming Pazla conference. Thanks again, everyone. For all of us in the securities finance world in Hong Kong, We're lucky enough to be surrounded by a market full of budding superstars. I would even call it a constellation of stars, but none of them shines brighter than our next legend of the market. It is my pleasure to welcome in Jack Chang, Executive Director, UBS Hong Kong. Welcome, my old friend. Thank you, Mab. Appreciate it. Now, Jack, we've both been in securities finance for 20 years, yet one of us is currently in an abandoned broom closet speaking into a microphone. (laughs) The other one of us runs the equity finance sales desk for one of the largest prime brokers in the world. The real question is, where did it go so wrong for me? (laughs) But on a serious note, let's spill some tea here. What is the secret? to your success. As you said, we've been in this career for 20 plus years. We've seen it all really, right? Uh, you know, and I don't really have a, you know, a any particular secret to success, but but then the, the, the way I look at it is that in my line of business, right? So it's all about give and take. I always leave something on the table because the other person will feel that they are getting something in return. Uh, so once that you know happens, things will fall into its place. So every time I'm in a situ- situation negotiations, for example, uh, the first question I ask myself is not what's in it for me, but rather what's in it for them. So secret to my success is not to lose sight of the bigger picture and what I'm trying to achieve overall, but also by measuring your success in the overall, the right direction you're heading into. Uh, that to me is uh, is uh, is key for, to success. Makes sense. Now it's widely known that you have the strongest sales team on the street. As a manager, how do you cultivate and especially retain talent? Thank you very much. I mean, I think uh, you know I, I've been fortunate enough to actually be able to work with some of the brightest and you know best people in the market. So there's a really a common misconception that people are motivated by money which is true to a certain extent, uh, because otherwise we wouldn't be in this industry, first of all. Uh, but ultimately, people are motivated by self-validation. So meaning if they feel trusted, valued, and empowered, uh, they will go above and beyond to get things done for me and for the firm. Uh, the way I retain talent is to make sure they feel all those things. Uh, so for example, you know, I'm very lucky to be running a very motivated, very high-energy, high-tempo team at UBS. 
Uh, I'm a firm believer that as a line manager, I make sure everybody in the team is fully engaged and feel included at all times. But also, you know, I think what's important is that to make sure that they feel and they understand that their personal contribution matters and that it has an immediate impact on our overall ability to achieve our team and firm's goals. I'm also extremely conscious of making sure that my team is diverse and inclusive in many ways, uh, in areas such as gender, culture, and uh, on the LGBTQ plus front, as ultimately I'm a firm believer that diversity makes us stronger. Now, you led me exactly where I wanted to go, Jack. Now, talking about one of your strengths, inclusion, and it might, might be easy for you because you speak seven languages and you've lived all over the world. But with Hong Kong being the melting pot of so many different culturals, nationalities, and languages, how would you advise someone to navigate being more inclusive? Sure. So, you know, well, being a diversity candidate myself and drawing from my own personal experiences of sitting on various diversity committees, you know, one thing I noticed, one common pitfall is that we tend to preach to the converted when in fact our efforts should be focused on changing minds. So for instance, I noticed that a lot of the gender equality events are attended by women, uh, and a lot of LGBTQ plus events are in fact attended by mostly by members of that committee. While it is important to have events to have women and LGBTQ plus members to network, I feel like there should be more to be done beyond just networking. So to build and foster an inclusive work environment, uh, you know, we need to do more than just trying to meet key corporate metrics, you know, as we all know, such as hiring a certain number of diversity candidates simply to check off the target quotas. To me, the most important thing is changing minds at the more senior levels. So in other words, hiring more diverse people into the bank alone will not change the status quo uh, unless we change the minds of those people who are the key decision makers at the very top. Yeah, valid points. Now, switching gears a little bit, I ask this same question to everyone that I interview. And so far, we haven't had any repeat answers, so no pressure. But what makes a good securities lending trader? Most people who know me knows that I've been fortunate enough to be given opportunities to hold various roles within finance over the past 20 plus years in the industry. You know, I've done everything from trading, sales, and even research. And I've also worked on both buy side and sell side. You know, each role I have done requires a different skill set. And out of everything I've done, to me, being a securities lending trader requires a well-rounded skill sets and personality. Uh, to be a successful securities lending trader, uh, you know, in my view, one needs to have both high EQ as well as high IQ. You know, having a high EQ is important because he, she will need to navigate within the market and get what they're looking for, whether it be sourcing new supplies or leveraging their relationship to get them out of trouble, such as trying to find last minute fail covers or simply using your personal relationship and charms, uh, you know, to kind of deflect potential recalls from our friendly lenders. <laughs> uh, so having the high EQ and being street smart and be connected with people in the market will, you know, really ultimately determine simple things like if you can cover your fail covers or not at the end of the day. On the other hand, having a high IQ is equally important because let's face it, you know, we're in the finance and the numbers need to make sense. Uh, before we put on any trade. So to me, securities lending trader is probably one of the few jobs on the trading floor that requires both high EQ and high IQ. You know, it's funny. I do ask this question to myself all the time, Jack, and, and I'll try to stay away from subjective words like smart or hardworking as they kind of depend on the audience. I'll have to go with, you have to be a psycho. <laughs> I mean, if you're in trading, you have to eat, sleep, and drink P&L. If you're in sales, you need to know your largest client's dog's name, right? <laughs> I mean, let me give you an example. When I was in college, I tried out for the basketball team and tryouts were a week long and I was determined for just one day 
to be better than our best player. So I get to the gym at 5.30 in the morning. The lights are already on, and he's in there squatting what looked to be a small Volkswagen. He gives me a wink and says, good afternoon. I mean, talk about a psycho, but you know what? It paid off because he played in the NBA for 20 years, so I, I guess it worked. <laughs> but moving on. Um, now, Jack, I've known you for a long time, and I admit I have a high school crush on you because you are the definition of nice guys finished first. Where does that come from? Well, you know, it's unfortunate that in finance, being nice is often considered a weakness, as we all know. So on the contrary, you know, to me, being perceived as a nice guy to, is actually a strength uh, because being perceived as a nice person is disarming. And the trick is to create a perception that I'm a nice guy, no matter what the situation is or who I'm dealing with. In my line of business, uh, the important thing is to really get what I want and meet my business goals at the end of the day. So, and I don't believe in the need to be nasty or put the other person down to achieve the same thing or meet my objectives. So in the process, you know, if they think I'm a nice guy, then all the power to me. Um, so also in finance, it is unfortunate that there's a bit of a stereotype, as you know, uh, that you have to step over people, you have to be cutthroat to get ahead in your career. So in my experience, uh, you know, stepping over people and being cutthroat may get you what you want in the short term, uh, but you really lose out the long-term relationship, which is important, especially in a small community like Hong Kong, where we really only have three degrees of separation. So ultimately, you know, what I believe is that I'm a firm believer of what goes around comes around. Now, it's like you're reading my notes because my next question, you, you essentially just answered it, but you've worked for both the investment banking side of the business and the hedge fund side. What's the difference managerially and culturally? And as you mentioned, what, are banks more cutthroat than hedge funds? So, you know, on the buy side, the decision making is more concentrated, I would say. And whereas on the sell side, decision making is more collaborative and diffused. So, for example, on the buy side, key decisions are often made by select few senior individuals at the top or the founder of the fund itself. Whereas on the sell side, there tends to be more layers of decision making rounds before decisions are actually formed. So culturally, buy side tends to be more boutique whereas sell side tends to have a massive headcount and have tens and thousands of staffs across the globe. So that means that on the buy side, it is easier to manage uh, because, you know, it is leaner, uh, but at the same time, it is less diverse. By contrast, though, uh, so sell side is more complex to navigate as they have more offices around the world, hence more regulatory environment to navigate through, which makes the organization more diverse. Now, I get it. Banking isn't for everyone. It's fast paced. Everything is urgent. Tensions run high. Uh, sometimes it feels like the house is on fire and we're all just arguing who's going to turn on the water. M my point is, do you think as an industry, we do enough to help mentor the younger generation? Because the deeper the roots, the better the fruits. You know, I, I think before we can answer that question, we need to take a step back and really look at how we are first attracting these younger demographics into finance industry overall. You know, we always assume finance jobs would be naturally sell itself, right? So perception of money and prestige was the case back in our generation. Uh, but this is no longer the case when we're now up against tech giants like Apple, Google, and other fintech and crypto firms for talents. We now find ourselves the need to sell ourselves before we even get them into the bank to mentor them. Uh, so we need to do improve our image uh, to get younger generations in the door. We need to focus on areas such as corporate social responsibility, so CSR, ESG, uh, environmental social and governance, and DNI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, and these are more than just acronyms or sound bites, right? Our industry should be doing more than just making money. In my view, we should have a bigger role in making a better world. So in going back to your original question, you know, I happen to work for a firm who is one of the industry leader in talent retention and diversity. 
But of course, there's always more to be done. In terms of mentoring of younger generations, we've been focused on such things as, uh, let's see, establishing a formal mentorship program within the firm, allowing interim mobility and rotation programs to help younger generations uh, develop and further enhance their careers. And lastly, we've been focusing on the work-life balance as well. Now, one last question for you, Jack. In your position of leadership, when clients are unhappy or your supply team is barking at you or maybe a tech meltdown, I get all the buzzwords, thick skin, resilience, but how do you actually bounce back from a bad day? You know, when I go to work in the morning, I check my ego at the door. So I know nothing is personal. If we do well and have a good day, uh, you know, it's because the team is functional and effective. And if we have a bad day, and trust me, I do have bad days, <laughs> I know that we are human and we make mistakes and that we can always do better. Uh, but it's really not about me. You know, once I take myself and my ego out of the equation, I find myself a lot more resilient. And that is how I bounce back from a bad day. Okay, Jack, it's official. I want to work for you. <laughs> but on a serious note, that was a <laughs> that was a real pleasure, Jack. And thanks for letting me peel back the curtain a little bit. Thank you very much for having me. Our only ask to the listener is, you are our lifeline. Market feedback of any kind helps. Comments, suggestions on future topics, inquiries, they're all welcomed. Please reach us at podcast at paslaonline.com. Stay tuned for more APAC updates on Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. We'll see you next time, and please check out paslaonline.com for conference details regarding PASLA's annual conference in March. This podcast was brought to you by Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry.